Section 36 of Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by Mrs. Edgar Lucas. The Marsh King's Daughter. Part 2. The Viking came home early that autumn with his booty and prisoners. Among these was a young Christian priest, one of those men who persecuted the heathen gods of the north. There had often been discussions of late, both in the hall and in the woman's bower, about the new faith which was spreading in all the countries to the south. Through the holy Ansgarius it had spread as far as Hedeby on the Schlei. Even little Helga had heard of the belief in the white Christ who from love to man had given himself for their salvation. As far as Helga was concerned, it had all gone in at one ear and out at the other, as one says. The very meaning of the word love only seemed to dawn upon her when she was shriveled up into the form of a frog in her secret chamber. But the Viking's wife had listened to the story, and had felt herself strangely moved by all these tales about the son of the only true God. The men on their return from their raids told them all about the temples built of costly polished stone, which were raised to him whose message was love. Once a couple of heavy golden vessels of cunning workmanship were brought home about which hung a peculiar spicy odor. They were censers used by the Christian priests to swing before the altars on which blood never flowed, but where the bread and wine were changed to the body and blood of him who gave himself for the yet unborn generations. The young priest was imprisoned in the deep stone cellars of the timber house, and his feet and hands were bound with strips of bark. He was as beautiful as Baldur, said the Viking's wife, and she felt pity for him, but young Helga proposed that he should be hamstrung and be tied to the tails of wild oxen. Then would I let the dogs loose on him, high and away over marshes and pools. That would be a merry sight, and merrier still would it be to follow in his course. However, this was not the death the Viking wished him to die, but rather that as a denier and persecutor of the great gods he should be offered up in the morning upon the bloodstone in the groves. For the first time a man was to be sacrificed here. Young Helga begged that she might sprinkle the effigies of the gods and the people with his blood. She polished her sharp knife, and when one of the great ferocious dogs, of which there were so many about the place, sprang towards her, she dug her knife into its side. To try it, she said. But the Viking's wife looked sadly at the wild, badly disposed girl. When the night came, and the girl's beauty of body and soul changed places, she spoke tender words of grief from her sorrowful heart. The ugly toad, with its ungainly body, stood fixing its sad brown eyes upon her, listening and seeming to understand with the mind of a human being. Never once to my husband has a word of my double grief through you passed my lips said the viking's wife my heart is full of grief for you great is a mother's love but love never entered your heart it is like a lump of cold clay however did you get into my house then the ungainly creature trembled as if the words touched some invisible cord between body and soul and great tears came into its eyes a bitter time will come to you said the viking's wife and it will be a terrible one to me too Better would it have been if, as a child, you had been exposed on the highway, and lulled by the cold to the sleep of death. 
and the Viking's wife shed bitter tears, and went away in anger and sorrow, passing under the curtain of skins which hung from the beams, and divided the hall. The shriveled-up toad crouched in the corner, and a dead silence reigned. At intervals a half-stifled sigh rose within her. It was as if, in anguish, something came to life in her heart. She took a step forward and listened. Then she stepped forward again, and grasped the heavy bar of the door with her clumsy hands. Softly she drew it back, and silently lifted the latch. Then she took up the lamp which stood in the anteroom. It seemed as if a strong power gave her strength. She drew out the iron bolt from the barred cellar door, and slipped in to the prisoner. He was asleep. She touched him with her cold, clammy hand, and when he woke and saw the hideous creature, he shuddered, as if he beheld an evil apparition. She drew out her knife and cut his bonds asunder, and then beckoned him to follow her. He named the holy name and made the sign of the cross, and as the form remained unchanged, he repeated the words of the psalmist, Blessed is the man who hath pity on the poor and needy, the Lord will deliver him in the time of trouble. Then he asked, Who art thou, whose outward appearance is that of an animal, whilst thou willingly performest deeds of mercy? The toad only beckoned him, and led him behind the sheltering curtains down a long passage to the stable, pointing to a horse, on to which he sprang, and she after him. She sat in front of him, clutching the mane of the animal. The prisoner understood her, and they rode at a quick pace along a path he never would have found to the heath. He forgot her hideous form, knowing that the mercy of the Lord worked through the spirits of darkness. He prayed and sang holy songs which made her tremble. Was it the power of prayer and his singing working upon her? Or was it the chill air of the advancing dawn? What were her feelings? She raised herself, and wanted to stop and jump off the horse. But the Christian priest held her tightly, with all his strength, and sang aloud a psalm, as if this could lift the spell which held her. The horse bounded on more wildly than before, the sky grew red, and the first sunbeams pierced the clouds. As the stream of light touched her, the transformation took place. She was once more a lovely maiden, but her demoniac spirit was the same. The priest held a blooming maiden in his arms, and he was terrified at the sight. He stopped the horse and sprang down, thinking he had met with a new device of the evil one. But young Helga sprang to the ground too. The short child's frock only reached to her knee. She tore the sharp knife from her belt and rushed upon the startled man. "'Let me get at thee!' she cried. Let me reach thee, and my knife shall pierce thee. Thou art ashen-pale, beardless slave. She closed upon him, and they wrestled together, but an invisible power seemed to give strength to the Christian. He held her tight, and the old oak under which they stood seemed to help him, for the loosened roots above the ground tripped her up. Close by rose a bubbling spring, and he sprinkled her with water and commanded the unclean spirit to leave her, making the sign of the cross over her according to Christian usage. But the baptismal water has no power if the spring of faith flows not from within. Yet even here something more than man's strength opposed itself, through him, against the evil which struggled within her. Her arms fell, and she looked with astonishment and paling cheeks at this man, 
who seemed to be a mighty magician skilled in secret arts. These were dark runes he was repeating, and cabalistic signs he was tracing in the air. She would not have blanched had he flourished a shining sword or a sharp axe before her face, but she trembled now as he traced the sign of the cross upon her forehead and bosom, and sat before him with drooping head like a wild bird tamed. He spoke gently to her about the deed of love she had performed for him this night, when she came in the hideous shape of a toad, cut his bonds asunder, and led him out to light and life. She herself was bound, he said, and with stronger bonds than his, but she also, through him, should reach to light and life everlasting. He would take her to Hedeby, to the holy Ansgarius, and there, in that Christian city, the spell would be removed, but she must no longer sit in front of him on the horse. Even if she went of her own free will, he dared not carry her thus. Thou must sit behind me, not before me. Thy magic beauty has a power given by the evil one, which I dread. Yet shall I have the victory through Christ. He knelt down, and prayed humbly and earnestly. It seemed as if the quiet wood became a holy church consecrated by his worship. The birds began to sing, as if they too were also of this new congregation, and the fragrance of the wild flowers was as the ambrosial perfume of incense, while the young priest recited the words of holy writ. The day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, to guide their feet into the way of peace. He spoke of the yearning of all nature for redemption, and while he spoke the horse which had carried them stood quietly by, only rustling among the bramble bushes, making the ripe, juicy fruit fall into little Helga's hands, as if inviting her to refresh herself. Patiently she allowed herself to be lifted on to the horse's back, and sat there like one in a trance, who neither watches nor wanders. The Christian man bound together two branches in the shape of a cross, which he held aloft in his hand as he rode through the wood. The brushwood grew thicker and thicker, till at last it became a trackless wilderness. Brushes of the wild sloe blocked the way, and they had to ride round them. The bubbling springs turned to standing pools, and these they also had to ride round. Still, they found strength and refreshment in the pure breezes of the forest, and no less a power in the tender words of faith and love spoken by the young priest in his fervent desire to lead this poor straying one into the way of light and love. It is said that raindrops can wear a hollow in the hardest stone, and the waves of the sea can smooth and round the jagged rocks. So did the dew of mercy falling upon little Helga soften all that was hard and smooth, all that was rough in her. Not that these effects were yet to be seen. She did not even know that they had taken place any more than the buried seed lying in the earth knows that the refreshing showers and the warm sunbeams will cause it to flourish and bloom. As the mother's song unconsciously falls upon the child's heart, it stammers the words after her without understanding them, but later they crystallize into thoughts, and in time become clear. In this way, the word also worked here in the heart of Helga. They rode out of the wood, over a heath, and again through trackless forests. Towards evening they met a band of robbers. "'Where hast thou stolen this beautiful child?' they cried. 
stopping the horse and pulling down the two riders, for they were a numerous party. The priest had no weapon, but the knife which he had taken from little Helga, and with this he struck out right and left. One of the robbers raised his axe to strike him, but the Christian succeeded in springing to one side, or he would certainly have been hit. But the blade flew into the horse's neck, so that the blood gushed forth, and it fell to the ground dead. Then little Helga, as if roused from a long, deep trance, rushed forward and threw herself onto the gasping horse. The priest placed himself in front of her as a shield and defense, but one of the robbers swung his iron club with such force at his head that the blood and the brains were scattered about, and he fell dead upon the ground. The robbers seized little Helga by her white arms, but the sun was just going down and as the last rays vanished she was changed into the form of a frog. A greenish-white mouth stretched half over her face. Her arms became thin and slimy, while broad hands, with webbed fingers, spread themselves out like fans. The robbers, in terror, let her go, and she stood among them a hideous monster, and, according to frog nature, she bounded away with great leaps as high as herself, and disappeared in the thicket. Then the robbers perceived that this must be Loki's evil spirit or some other witchcraft, and they hurried away affrighted. The full moon had risen, and was shining in all its splendor when poor little Helga, in the form of a frog, crept out of the thicket. She stopped by the body of the Christian priest and the dead horse. She looked at them with eyes which seemed to weep. A sob came from the toad like that of a child bursting to tears. She threw herself down, first upon one, and then on the other, and brought water in her hand, which, from being large and webbed, formed a cup. This she sprinkled them with, but they were dead, and dead they must remain. This she understood. Soon wild animals would come and devour them, but no, that should never be. So she dug into the ground as deep as she could. She wished to dig a grave for them. She had nothing but the branch of a tree in her two hands, and she tore the web between her fingers until the blood ran from them. She soon saw that the task would be beyond her, so she fetched fresh water and washed the face of the dead man, and strewed fresh green leaves over it. She also brought large boughs to cover him, and scattered dry leaves between the branches. Then she brought the heaviest stones she could carry and laid them over the dead body, filling up the spaces with moss. Now she thought the mound was strong and secure enough, but the difficult task had employed the whole night. The sun was just rising, and there stood little Helga in all her beauty, with bleeding hands and maidenly tears for the first time, on her blushing cheeks. It was in this transformation as if two natures were struggling in her. She trembled and glanced round as if she were just awakening from a troubled dream. She leaned for support against a slender beech, and at last climbed to the topmost branches like a cat, and seated herself firmly upon them. She sat there for the whole live-long day, like a frightened squirrel in the solitude of the wood, where all is still and dead, as they say. Dead. Well, there flew a couple of butterflies whirling around and round each other, and close by were some ant hills, each with its hundreds of busy little creatures swarming to and fro. In the air danced countless midges, 
and swarm upon swarm of flies, ladybirds, dragonflies with golden wings and other little winged creatures. The earthworm crept forth from the moist ground, and the moles, but excepting these all was still and dead around. When people say this, they don't quite understand what they mean. None noticed little Helga but a flock of jackdaws which flew chattering around the tree where she sat. They hopped along the branch towards her, boldly inquisitive, but a glance from her eye was enough to drive them away. They could not make her out, though, any more than she could understand herself. When the evening drew near, and the sun began to sink, the approaching transformation roused her to fresh exertion. She slipped down gently from the tree and when the last sunbeam was extinguished she sat there once more, the shriveled-up frog with her torn webbed hands, but her eyes now shone with a new beauty which they had hardly possessed in all the pride of her loveliness. These were the gentlest and tenderest maiden's eyes which now shone out of the face of the frog. They bore witness to the existence of deep feeling and a human heart, and the beauteous eyes overflowed with tears, weeping precious drops that lightened the heart. The cross made of branches, the last work of him who now was dead and cold, still lay by the grave. Little Helga took it up. The thought came unconsciously, and she placed it between the stones which covered man and horse. At the sad recollection her tears burst forth again, and in this mood she traced the same sign in the earth round the grave. And as she formed with both hands the sign of the cross, the webbed skin fell away from her fingers like a torn glove. She washed her hands at the spring, and gazed in astonishment at their delicate whiteness. Again she made the holy sign in the air, between herself and the dead man. Her lips trembled, her tongue moved, and the name which she in her ride through the forest had so often heard rose to her lips, and she uttered the words, Jesus Christ. The frog's skin fell away from her. She was the beautiful young maiden but her head bent wearily, and her lips required rest. She slept. But her sleep was short. She was awakened at midnight, before her stood the dead horse prancing and full of life, which shone forth from his eyes and his wounded neck. Close by his side appeared the murdered Christian priest, more beautiful than Baldur, the Viking's life might indeed have said, and yet he was surrounded by flames of fire. There was such earnestness in his large, mild eyes, and such righteous judgment in his penetrating glance which pierced into the remotest corners of her heart. Little Helga trembled, and every memory within her awakened as if it had been the day of judgment. Every kindness which had ever been shown her, every loving word which had ever been said to her, came vividly before her. She now understood that it was love which had sustained her in those days of trial, through which all creatures formed of dust and clay, soul and spirit, must wrestle and struggle. She acknowledged that she had but followed whither she was called, had done nothing for herself, all had been given her. She bent now in lowly humility, and full of shame, before him who could read every impulse of her heart, and in that moment she felt the purifying flame of the Holy Spirit thrill through her soul. Thou daughter of earth, said the Christian martyr, out of the earth art thou come, from the earth shalt thou rise again. The sunlight within thee shall consciously return to its origin, 
not the beams of the actual sun, but those from God. No soul will be lost. Things temporal are full of weariness, but eternity is life-giving. I come from the land of the dead. Thou also must one day journey through the deep valleys to reach the radiant mountain summits, where dwell grace and all perfections. I cannot lead thee to Hedeby for Christian baptism. First must thou break the watery shield that covers the deep morass, and bring forth from its depths the living author of thy being and thy life. Thou must first carry out thy vocation before thy consecration may take place. Then he lifted her up on to the horse, and gave her a golden censer like those she had seen in the Viking's hall. A fragrant perfume arose from it, and the open wound on the martyr's forehead gleamed like a radiant diadem. He took the cross from the grave, holding it high above him, while they rode rapidly through the air, across the murmuring woods, and over the heights where the mighty warriors of old lay buried, each seated on his dead war-horse. These strong men of war arose and rode out to the summits of the mounds, the broad golden circlets round their foreheads gleaming in the moonlight, and their cloaks fluttering in the wind. The great dragon hoarding his treasure raised his head to look at them, and the whole hosts of dwarfs peeped forth from their hillocks, swarming with red, green, and blue lights, like sparks from the ashes of burnt paper. Away they flew over wood and heath, rivers and pools, up north towards the wild bog. Arrived there they hovered round in great circles. The martyr raised high the cross, it shone like gold, and his lips chanted the holy mass. Little Helga sang with him as a child joins in its mother's song. She swung the censer, and from it issued a fragrance of the altar so strong and so wonder-working that the reeds and rushes burst into blossom, and numberless flower-stems shot up from the bottomless steps. Everything that had life within it lifted itself up and blossomed. The water-lilies spread themselves over the surface of the pool like a carpet of wrought flowers, and on this carpet lay a sleeping woman. She was young and beautiful. Little Helga fancied she saw herself her picture mirrored in the quiet pool. It was her mother she saw, the wife of the Marsh King, the princess from the River Nile. The martyred priest commanded the sleeping woman to be lifted up on the horse, but the animal sank beneath the burden, as though it had no more substance than a winding sheet floating on the wind. But the sign of the cross gave strength to the phantom, and all three rode on through the air to dry ground. Just then the cock crew from the Viking's hall, and the vision melted away in the mist which was driven along by the wind. But mother and daughter stood side by side. "'Is it myself I see reflected in the deep water?' said the mother. "'Do I see myself mirrored in a bright shield?' said the daughter. But as they approached and clasped each other heart to heart, the mother's heart beat the fastest, and she understood. "'My child!' my own heart's blossom, my lotus out of the deep waters. And she wept over her daughter. Her tears were a new baptism of love and life for little Helga. I came hither in a swan's plumage, and here I threw it off, said the mother. I sank down into the bog, which closed around me. Some power always dragged me down, deeper and deeper. I felt the hand of sleep pressing upon my eyelids. I fell asleep, and I dreamt. I seemed to be again in the vast Egyptian pyramid, 
but still before me stood the moving alder stump which had frightened me on the surface of the bog. I gazed at the fissures of the bark, and they shone out in bright colors and turned to hieroglyphs. It was the mummy's wrappings I was looking at. The coverings burst asunder, and out of them walked the mummy king of a thousand years ago, black as pitch, black as the shining wood sail, or the slimy mud of the swamp. Whether it were the mummy king or the marsh king I knew not. He threw his arms around me, and I felt that I must die. When life came back to me I felt something warm upon my bosom, a little bird fluttering its wings and twittering. It flew from my bosom high up towards the heavy dark canopy, but a long green ribbon still bound it to me. I heard and understood its notes of longing. Freedom! Sunshine! To the Father! I remembered my own father in the sunlit land of my home, my life and my love, and I loosened the ribbon and let it flutter away, home to my father. Since that hour I have dreamt no more. I must have slept a long and heavy sleep till this hour, when sweet music and fragrant odors awoke me and set me free. Where did now the green ribbon flutter which bound the mother's heart to the wings of the bird? Only the stork had seen it. The ribbon was the green stem, the bow the gleaming flower which cradled the little baby, now grown up to her full beauty, and once more resting on her mother's breast. While they stood there, pressed heart to heart, the stork was wheeling above their heads in great circles. At length he flew away to his nest and brought back the swan's plumages so long cherished there. He threw one over each of them. The feathers closed over them closely, and mother and daughter rose into the air as two white swans. "'Now let us talk,' said the father stork, "'for we can understand each other's language, even if one sort of bird has a different shaped beak from another. It is the most fortunate thing in the world that you appeared this evening. Tomorrow we should have been off, mother and I and the young ones. We are going to fly southwards. Yes, you may look at me. I am an old friend from the Nile, so is mother too.' Her heart is not so sharp as her beak. She always said that the princess would take care of herself. I and the young ones carried the swan's plumage up here. How delighted I am, and how lucky it is that I am still here. As soon as the day dawns we will set off, a great company of storks. We will fly in front, you had better follow us, and then you won't lose your way, and we will keep an eye upon you. And the lotus flower which I was to take with me? said the Egyptian princess, flies by my side in a swan's plumage. I take the flower of my heart with me. And so the riddle is solved. Now for home. Home. But Helga said she could not leave the Danish land without seeing her loving foster-mother once more, the Viking's wife. For in Helga's memory now rose up every happy recollection, every tender word, and every tear her foster-mother had shed over her and it almost seemed as if she loved this mother best. "'Yes, we must go to the Viking's Hall,' said the father stork. "'Mother and the young ones are waiting for us there. How they will open their eyes and flap their wings! Mother doesn't say much. She is somewhat short and abrupt, but she means very well. Now I will make a great clattering to let them know we are coming.' So he clattered with his beak, and he and the swans flew off to the Viking's Hall. They all lay in a deep sleep within. The Viking's wife had gone late to rest, for she was in great anxiety about little Helga, who had not been seen in three days. 
she had disappeared with the Christian priest, and she must have helped him away. It was her horse which was missing from the stable. By what power had this been brought to pass? The Viking's wife thought over all the many miracles which were said to have been performed by the white Christ, and by those who believed in him and followed him. All these thoughts took form in her dreams, and it seemed to her that she was still awake, sitting thoughtfully upon her bed while darkness reigned without. A storm arose. She heard the rolling of the waves east and west of her from the North Sea, and from the waters of the Catechet. The monstrous serpent, which, according to her faith, encompassed the earth in the depths of the ocean, was trembling in convulsions from the dread of Ragnarok, the night of the gods. He personified the day of judgment, when everything should pass away, even the great gods themselves. The Gyalar horn sounded, and away over the rainbow rode the gods, clad in steel, to fight their last battle. Before them flew the shield-maidens, the Valkyrias, and the ranks were closed by the phantoms of the dead warriors. The whole atmosphere shone in the radiance of the northern lights, but darkness conquered in the end. It was a terrible hour and in her dream little Helga sat close beside the frightened woman, crouching on the floor in the form of a hideous frog. She trembled and crept closer to her foster mother, who took her on her knee, and in her love pressed her to her bosom, notwithstanding the hideous frog's skin. And the air resounded with the clashing of sword and club, and the whistling of arrows as though a fierce hailstorm were passing over them. The hour had come when heaven and earth were to pass away, the stars to fall, and everything to succumb to Surtur's fire. And yet a new earth and a new heaven would rise, and fields of corn would wave where the seas now rolled over the golden sands. The god whom none might name would reign, and to him would ascend Baldur the mild, the loving, redeemed from the kingdom of the dead. He was coming. The Viking's wife saw him plainly. She knew his face. It was that of the Christian priest, their prisoner. White Christ, she cried aloud. And as she named the name, she pressed a kiss upon the forehead of the loathsome toad. The frog's skin fell away, and before her stood little Helga in all the radiance of her beauty, gentle as she had never been before, and with beaming eyes. She kissed her foster mother's hands, and blessed her for all the care and love she had shown in the days of her trial and misery. She thanked her for the thoughts she had instilled into her, and for naming the name which she now repeated, White Christ. Little Helga rose up as a great white swan, and spread her wings, with the rushing sound of a flock of birds, of passage on the wing. The Viking's wife was awakened by the rushing sound of wings outside. She knew it was the time when the storks took their flight and it was these she heard. She wanted to see them once more and to bid them farewell, so she got up and went out on the balcony. She saw stork upon stork sitting up on the roofs of the outbuildings round the courtyard, and flocks of them were flying round and round in great circles. Just in front of her, on the edge of the well where little Helga so often had frightened her with her wildness, sat two white swans, who gazed at her with their wise eyes. Then she remembered her dream, which still seemed quite real to her. She thought of little Helga in the form of a swan. She thought of the Christian priest, and suddenly a great joy arose in her heart. The swans flapped their wings, 
and bent their heads as if to greet her, and the Viking's wife stretched out her arms towards them as if she understood all about it, and she smiled at them with tears in her eyes. "'We are not going to wait for the swans,' said the mother stork. "'If they want to travel with us, they must come. We can't dawdle here till the plowers start. It is very nice to travel as we do, the whole family together, not like the chaffinches and the roughs, when the males and females fly separately. It's hardly decent.' And why are those swans flapping their wings like that? Well, everyone flies in his own way, said the father stork. The swans fly in an oblique line, the cranes in the form of a triangle, and the plowers in a curved line like a snake. Don't talk about snakes while we're flying up here, said the mother stork. It puts desires into the young ones' heads which they can't gratify. Are those the high mountains I used to hear about? asked Helga in the swan's plumage. "'Those are the thunderclouds driving along beneath us,' said her mother. "'What are those white clouds that rise so high?' again inquired Helga. "'Those are the mountains covered with perpetual snows that you see yonder,' said her mother, as they flew across the Alps down towards the blue Mediterranean. "'Africa's land, Egypt's strand,' said the daughter of the Nile in her joy, as from far above in her swan's plumage her eye fell upon the narrow waving yellow line, her birthplace. The other birds saw it too, and hastened to their flight. "'I smell the Nile mud and the frogs,' said the mother stork. "'I am tingling all over. Now you will have something nice to taste, and something to see too. There are the marabouts, the ibis, and the crane. They all belong to our family, but they are not nearly so handsome as we are. They are very stuck up, though, especially the ibis. They have been so spoilt by the Egyptians. They make mummies of him, and stuff him with spices. I would rather be stuffed with living frogs, and so would you. And so you shall be. Better have something in your crops while you are alive than have a great fuss made over you after you are dead. That's my opinion, and I am always right. The storks have come back, was said in the great house on the Nile, where its lord lay in the great hall on his downy cushions, covered with a leopard's skin, scarcely alive, and yet not dead either, waiting and hoping for the lotus flower from the deep morass in the north. Relatives and servants stood round his couch, when two great white swans who had come with the storks flew into the hall. They threw off their dazzling plumage, and there stood two beautiful women, as like each other as twin drops of dew. They bent over the pale, withered old man, throwing back their long hair. As little Helga bent over her grandfather, the color came back to his cheeks, and new life returned to his limbs. The old man rose with health and energy renewed. His daughter and granddaughter clasped him in their arms, as if with a joyous morning greeting after a long troubled night. Joy reigned throughout the house, and in the stork's nest too. But there the rejoicing was chiefly over the abundance of food, especially the swarms of frogs. And while the sages hastily sketched the story of the two princesses, and the flower of healing, which brought such joy and blessing to the land, the parent storks told the same story in their own way to their family. But only when they had all satisfied their appetites, or they would have had something better to do than listen to stories. "'Surely you will be made something at last,' whispered the mother stork. It wouldn't be reasonable otherwise. Oh, what should I be made, said the father stork, and what have I done? Nothing at all. 
You have done more than all the others. Without you and the young ones, the two princesses would never have been in Egypt again, nor would the old man have recovered his health. You will become something. They will at least give you a doctor's degree, and our young ones will be born with the title, and their young ones after them. Why, you look like an Egyptian doctor already, at least in my eyes. And now the learned men and the sages set to work to propound the inner principle, as they called it, that lay at the root of the matter. Love is the food of life, was their text. Then came the explanations. The princess was the warm sunbeam. She went down to the marsh king, and from their meeting sprang forth the blossom. I can't exactly repeat the words, said the father stork. He had been listening on the roof, and now wanted to tell them all about it in the nest. What they said was so involved and so clever that they not only received rank, but presents too. Even the head cook had a mark of distinction, most likely for the soup. "'And what did you get?' asked the mother stork. "'They ought not to forget the most important person, and that is what you are. The sages have only cackled about it all, but your turn will come, no doubt.' Late at night, when the whole happy household were wrapped in peaceful slumbers, there was still one watcher. It was not Father Stork, although he stood up in the nest on one leg like a sentry asleep at his post. No, it was little Helga. She was watching, bending out over the balcony in the clear air, gazing at the shining stars, bigger and purer in their radiance than she had ever seen them in the north. And yet they were the same. She thought of the Viking's wife by the wild bog. She thought of her foster mother's gentle eyes, and the tears she had shed over the poor frog-child, who now stood in the bright starlight and delicious spring air by the waters of the Nile. She thought of the love in the heathen woman's breast, the love she had lavished on a miserable creature, who in human guise was a wild animal, and when in the form of an animal was hateful to the sight and to the touch. She looked at the shining stars, and remembered the dazzling light on the forehead of the martyred priest as he flew over moorland and forest. The tones of his voice came back to her, and words that he had said while she sat, overwhelmed and crushed, words concerning the sublime source of love, the highest love embracing all generations of mankind. What had not been won and achieved by this love? Day and night little Helga was absorbed in the thought of her happiness. She entirely lost herself in the contemplation of it, like a child who turns hurriedly from the giver to examine the beautiful gifts. Happy she was indeed, and her happiness seemed ever growing. More might come, would come. In these thoughts she indulged until she thought no more of the giver. It was in the wantonness of youth that she thus sinned. Her eyes sparkled with pride, but suddenly she was roused from her vain dream. She heard a great clatter in the courtyard below, and looking out, saw two great ostriches rushing hurriedly round in circles. Never before had she seen this great, heavy, clumsy bird, which looked as if its wings had been clipped, and the birds themselves had the appearance of having been roughly used. She asked what had happened to them, and for the first time heard the legend the Egyptians tell concerning the ostrich. Once, they say, the ostriches were a beautiful and glorious race of birds, with large, strong wings. One evening the great birds of the forest said to it, Brother, shall we to-morrow, God willing, go down to the river to drink? And the ostrich answered, 
I will. At the break of day, then, they flew off, first rising high in the air towards the sun, the eye of God. Still higher and higher the ostrich flew, far in front of the other birds, in its pride flying close up to the light. He trusted in his own strength, and not on that of the giver. He would not say, God willing. But the avenging angel drew back the veil from the flaming ocean of sunlight, and in a moment the wings of the proud bird were burnt, and he sank miserably to the earth. Since that time the ostrich and his race have never been able to rise in the air. He can only fly terror-stricken along the ground, or round and round in narrow circles. It is a warning to mankind, reminding us in every thought and action to say, God willing. Helga thoughtfully and seriously bent her head, and looked at the hunted ostrich, noticed its fear and its miserable pride at the sight of its own great shadow on the white moonlit wall. Her thoughts grew graver and more earnest. A life so rich in joy had already been given her. What more was to come? The best of all, perhaps. God willing. Early in the spring, when the storks were again about to take flight to the north, little Helga took off her gold bracelet, and, scratching her name on it, beckoned to Father Stork and put it round his neck. She told him to take it to the Viking's wife, who would see by it that her foster daughter still lived, was happy, and had not forgotten her. "'It is a heavy thing to carry,' thought the Father Stork, as it slipped onto his neck. "'But neither gold nor honour are to be thrown upon the highway. The stork brings good luck, they say up there. "'You lay gold, and I lay eggs,' said the Mother Stork. "'But you only lay once, and I lay every year. But no one appreciates us. I call it very mortifying.' One always has the consciousness of one's own worth, though, mother, said the father stork. But you can't hang it outside, said the mother stork. It neither gives a fair wind nor a full meal. And they took their departure. The little nightingale singing in the tamarind bushes was also going north soon. Helga had often heard it singing by the wild bog, so she determined to send a message by it, too. She knew the bird language from having worn a swan's plumage, and she had kept it up by speaking to the storks and the swallows. The nightingale understood her quite well, so she begged it to fly to the beechwood in Jutland, where she had made the grave of stones and branches. She bade it tell all the other little birds to guard the grave, and to sing over it. The nightingale flew away, and time flew away too. In the autumn an eagle perched on one of the pyramids saw a gorgeous train of heavily laden camels, and men clad in armor riding fiery Arab steeds as white as silver with quivering red nostrils and flowing manes reaching to the ground. A royal prince from Arabia, as handsome as a prince should be, was arriving at the stately mansion where now the stork's nest stood empty. Its inhabitants were still in their northern home, but they would soon now return, nay, on the very day when the rejoicings were at their height, they returned. They were bridal festivities, and little Helga was the bride, clad in rich silk and many jewels. The bridegroom was the young prince from Arabia, and they sat together at the upper end of the table between their mother and her grandfather. But Helga was not looking at the bridegroom's handsome face round which his black beard curled, nor did she look into his fiery dark eyes which were fixed upon hers. She was gazing up at a brilliant twinkling star which was beaming in the heavens. Just then there was a rustle of great wings in the air outside. 
the storks had come back, and the old couple, tired as they were and needing rest, flew straight down to the railing of the veranda. They knew nothing about the festivities. They had heard on the frontiers of the country that little Helga had had them painted on the wall, for they belonged to the story of her life. It was prettily done of her, said the father stork. It is little enough, said the mother stork. They could hardly do less. When Helga saw them, she rose from the table and went out to the veranda to stroke their wings. The old storks bowed their heads, and the very youngest ones looked on and felt honored. And Helga looked up at the shining star, which seemed to grow brighter and purer. Between herself and the star floated a form purer even than the air, and therefore visible to her. It floated quite close to her, and she saw that it was the martyred priest. He also had come to her great festival, come even from the heavenly kingdom. The glory and bliss yonder far outshines these earthly splendors, he said. Little Helga prayed more earnestly and meekly than she had ever done before, that for one single moment she might gaze into the kingdom of heaven. Then she felt herself lifted up above the earth in a stream of sweet sounds and thoughts. The unearthly music was not only around her, it was within her. No words can express it. Now we must return. You will be missed, said the martyr. Only one glance more, she pleaded. Only one short moment more. We must return to earth. The guests are departing. Only one look, the last. Little Helga stood once again on the veranda, but all the torches outside were extinguished, and all the lights in the banqueting hall were out too. The storks were gone. No guests were to be seen. No bridegroom. All had vanished in those short three minutes. A great dread seized upon Helga. She walked through the great empty hall into the next chamber, where strange warriors were sleeping. She opened a side door, which led into her own room, but she found herself in a garden, which had never been there before. Red gleams were in the sky. Dawn was approaching. Only three minutes in heaven, and a whole night on earth, had passed away. Then she saw the storks. She called to them in her own language. Father Stork turned his head, listened, and came up to her. "'You speak our language,' he said. "'What do you want? Why do you come here, you strange woman?' "'It is I. It is Helga. Don't you know me? We were talking to each other in the veranda three minutes ago.' "'That is a mistake,' said the stork. "'You must have dreamt it.' "'No, no,' she said, and she reminded him of the Viking stronghold and the wild bog and their journey together. Father Stork blinked his eyes and said, "'Why, that is a very old story. I believe it happened in the time of my great-great-grandmother. Yes, there certainly was a princess in Egypt who came from the Danish land.' but she disappeared on her wedding night many hundreds of years ago. You may read all about it here, on the monument in the garden. There are both storks and swans carved on it, and you are at the top yourself, all in white marble. And so it was. Helga understood all about it now, and sank upon her knees. The sun burst forth, and, as in former times, the frog's skin fell away before his beams, and revealed the beautiful girl. 
So now, in the baptism of light, a vision of beauty, brighter and purer than the air, a ray of light, rose to the Father. The earthly body dropped away in dust. Only a withered lotus flower lay where she had stood. Well, that is a new ending to the story, said Father Stork. I hadn't expected that, but I like it very well. What will the young ones say about it? asked Mother Stork. Ah, that is a very important matter, said Father Stork. End of section 36